0: Well, today we continue our series from the Old Testament, and we've come to the book of Joel. Now, Joel was one of the minor prophets. They were not called minor because of the insignificance of their message. They were called minor prophets because of the brevity of what they wrote. I remember when God called me to preach, and my mentor, Dr. John Bassanio, said, Wendell, Remember one thing as a preacher. I said, what is that, John? He said, there is no such thing as a bad short sermon. Well, the minor prophets gave short sermons. We don't know a lot about Joel. His name means Jehovah is God. There are at least twelve men who shared the name Joel in the Old Testament. So we don't know a lot about him, nor do we know when the book was written. There is some uncertainty about the date of the book. There are those who believe that he was a contemporary of Amos. Dr. Lightfoot wrote, Because he speaks of the same judgments of locusts and drought and fire, that Amos laments, which is an intimation that they appeared about the same time. Amos in Israel and Joel... In Judah. So it is believed then by some that the book was written around 800 BC, that Joel lived in about 800 BC. There are others who put the date later, about 400 years later, that he lived in. After the uh, after the exile was over, around 400 B.C. So we're going to look at the book today, and uh, we're going to examine the plague of locusts. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten." Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine-drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white." Now, the first two chapters of the book of Joel deals with this invasion or this devastating plague of locusts. Now, here's the question. Was this literal or was it symbolic? In other words, was this actually or literally a plague of locusts or was it an invading army? Now, I'm going to present this as if it were literal, because that's what I believe. So we see the devastation that took place there in verse number 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Warren Wearsby wrote in verse 4, We do not have four different insects. Rather, we have the locust in four different stages of growth. So we're talking then about this devastation that took place in Israel at this time with the plague of locusts. First of all, there was the gnawing locust. This is a caterpillar that suddenly appears and devours the herbage. This is a caterpillar that comes about and eats up All of the plant life. That is followed, he says, by the swarming locust. Now, in the South, we refer to the swarming locust as a grasshopper. And you are all familiar with grasshoppers. I remember as a boy growing up in Texas, there were those summers when we would have this swarm of grasshoppers. I mean, there were thousands of them, tens of thousands of grasshoppers. They came from everywhere. They ate everything. As a matter of fact, as one drove down the roads, you could hear the grasshoppers crunching underneath your tires. I mean that literally. They were everywhere. You might recall a scene from Lonesome Dove, and there was a swarm of grasshoppers that came, and they ate up all of the grass right down to the nub. So this, then, is the grasshopper. He says, that is followed by the creeping locust. And that refers to moths and their larvae, pests, forests, and shade trees. That was followed by the stripping locust. That is the larvae of the butterfly or moth. The root word means to eat or to consume. Alright, so that's the situation that you have here. It is a time of devastation in the land. There is a plague of locusts that comes and eats all of the plant life. What are we to do? When there is such devastation, what should the people of God do? The command from God is to cry to the Lord. Now, that is the part, that is to be the response of the people. When we face difficulties such as this, when we face devastation such as this, the command that comes to us is that we are to cry to the Lord and the priests are to lead. Look at verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. And lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Matthew Henry wrote, The ministers of the altar used to rejoice before the Lord and to spend their time very much in singing, but now they must lament and howl. So, what he is saying is that there was the devastation that came. What, what is to be done? He says the priests are to cry to the Lord. Folks, it should always be that the priest, that the, that the pastor, that the preacher, it should always be that they lead during such times to a time of repentance, to a time to the Lord. So he says that they are to cry out to the Lord, but it doesn't stop with the priest. He says, now then, they are to assemble the people of God to the house of God in verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So he says, now then, the priests are to repent. They are to cry out to the Lord. They are to gather the people of God to the house of God that there might be a solemn assembly, that there might be a fast, that the people of God are crying out to God. You remember after 9-11? You saw that, didn't you? And the people gathered in the houses of God across this land. It was a time of crying out to the Lord. It was a time of repentance. It was a time of prayer. It didn't last long. But there was that time when the people of God understood the devastation that had taken place, and so they assembled in the house of God to cry out to the Lord. There's to be a warning now about the day of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. So he says, in light of this, what are we to do? He said, blow the trumpet. The priests are to make the people aware as to what is happening. Make the people aware of the coming judgment. Make the people aware of the devastation because they need to repent. Chapter 2, verse number 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. So the people of God are expected to return to Him, to cry out to Him, to repent of sin. And then the Lord says, now, if you do that, that's your part. When there is devastation, what is to happen? The people of God are to cry out to the Lord. What does the Lord promise? He promises, if you do your part, then I will do my part. And His part is the promise of mercy. He would restore that that is destroyed. Look at chapter 2, verse number 25. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. Folks, here's the good news. We face devastation oftentimes in life. The promise of God is if we return to Him, He will restore that that we have lost. Sin steals so much of our lives, but the promise of God is that if we cry out to Him, if we return to Him, then He will restore that that has been lost. I have known people who have wasted so much of their lives, and perhaps some of you today, You have wasted so much of your lives in sin away from God, rebelling against God. But the good news is I have seen some of those people later in life whenever they've come to the Lord. And God has given them that joy, that abundance, that life that only He can give. The the abundant life that He promises. The tragedy is, is that they wasted so much of their life. Sometimes in relationships where there is a strain or where the relationship is severed, God can restore that, that sin has destroyed. With husbands and wives and parents and children and so forth. I, I, have, I have known uh, uh, parents who were not that good as parents, but then they came to the Lord and really knew the Lord and loved the Lord and they became wonderful grandparents. That's what He's saying. I can restore that that has been destroyed. Folks, that's good news for you. I don't know what Satan has taken from you. I don't know what he has has left you with. But I know this, that if we cry out to the Lord, the promise from God is that I can restore what has been taken. And he said, and I'll bless with plenty. Look at chapter 2, verse number 26. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied And Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Dr. Thomas wrote, "...it is clear for either argument or illustration that if you change the moral character of any country from ignorance to intelligence, from indolence to industry, from intemperance to self-discipline, from sensualness to spirituality, from enmity to love, that the whole material region in which they live may abound with plenteousness and beauty." I I really believe this. I believe that if America turned to God, that if our nation turned to God, the problems we are dealing with today would vanish away. I believe that if America turned to God, you wouldn't see the tremendous stifling debt that we have, but we would be prosperous as a nation again. I believe that. The reason I believe that is because our problem is not an economic problem. Our problem is a spiritual problem. And if we turn back to God, the promise of God is that I will bless you with plenty. As I look at this, I see the devastation of the plague of locusts. And God says, cry out to me and I will restore then there's the prophecy for the future in chapter 2, verse 28. And it will come about after this, that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Did you notice he says, after this? Right, so now that he is looking into the future, he is looking prophetically after this. The homiletic commentary wrote, the prophecy from chapter 2, Verse 28. To the end of this book constitutes one whole embracing the Messianic period from the day of Pentecost to the final triumph and consummation of the kingdom. So from this point then in chapter 2 verse number 28, Joel becomes a prophet looking ahead. He is looking into the future. In chapter 3, verse number 1, he says, For behold, in those days and at that time... So he looks ahead. He looks into the future. He is a prophet looking into the future. And he says, in those days, in those days yet to come, what did he see? When he looked to the future back then, what did he see? In those days, he says, that God will judge... Look at chapter 3, verse number 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. The word Jehoshaphat means God shall judge. Matthew Henry wrote, All the nations had made themselves liable to the judgment of God for wrong done to His people. Matthew Henry said, as he looks into the future, seeing what is going to happen, as he looks into the future, the nations become liable because of the way they treated Israel. Joel prophesies the verdict in chapter 3, verse 18. It will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. God will bless His chosen people. Folks, already, even now, I am amazed. You know know how I feel about Israel. I love Israel. Probably my favorite place on earth. I love Israel. I am absolutely astounded every time I go there. And I've been going since the 1970s. So I've seen a lot of changes take place there. But when you travel down to the Dead Sea in that area that is a desert area, and you see all those banana trees, and you see orange groves, and you see all the vegetation that grows there, did you know that they export vegetables and fruits and all that to most of Europe? I mean, God has just blessed them. It it is a the, The desert is blossoming. And then Tel Aviv is such a tremendous city in the city of Tel Aviv. If a building is built, it has to be at least 30 stories high because of the lack of land there. So there are buildings everywhere in Tel Aviv. And that all, as I understand it, all of that foreshadows God's future blessings. Warren Wiersbe wrote, Joel is picturing a time when wine, milk, and water shall flow in ceaseless measure in the land. This is, of course, the kingdom age when Jesus Christ shall sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. So as I look at what is happening in Israel now, and I see the growth, I see the vegetation, I see the fruit, I see all of that that is taking place, and then know that it is only a foreshadow of what God is going to do with His chosen land in the days to come. Now look again at chapter 3, verse 18. And it will come about in that day. He says it will come about. He's looking into the future. It will come about. This is still to come. It will come about. You recall that Simon Peter, in his message at Pentecost, references this. And in Acts chapter 2, verse number 16 Peter says this, and he's speaking of Pentecost, what is going on there. He preaches the message of Christ. 3,000 people are saved and baptized and so forth. This refers to what was going on at Pentecost. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So Simon Peter says, what you are seeing here, the message of Jesus, people being saved, what you are seeing here, he says, this is what was prophesied by Joel. It will come about in that day. Now, the prophecy was not fulfilled in Joel's day. It was not fulfilled in Peter's day. It might be fulfilled in our day. Because this is a prophecy concerning the return of Christ. Warren Weersby wrote, Peter does not say Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. Rather, he says, this is that which was spoken. The full prophecy of Joel with its dramatic signs in the heavens will not be fulfilled until the last days. So beginning there in chapter 2, verse number 28, you have a prophecy about the future. He is prophesying about what is yet to come. It began at Pentecost and it continues until Christ returns. So, what is the message for us today? What does Joel have to say to us today? First of all, he says, be aware. Be aware of what is going on around you. Be aware of the signs that God gives to you. Look at back chapter 1, verse number 5a. He says, awake drunkards and weep. He said, don't be like a drunk. A drunk person is absolutely unaware of his or her environment. A person who is a drunk is not aware that he's losing his family. He's not aware that his wife is about to move. He doesn't see the signs. He doesn't see his environment. And so what he is saying is, don't be like a drunk person, but instead see the signs. Now, let me just give you a little parenthesis here. As I understand eschatology or the study of last things... The return of the Lord. Here's, here's what some of the things I see happening. The Bible says that the wheat and the tares have existed together. The wheat being the believer, the tares being the unbeliever. They have existed together. Now as we come close to the end of time, the Bible says that there's going to be this coming apart. The separation of the wheat and the tares. And we are seeing that today. We are seeing the wheat Christians... Becoming stronger in their commitment to Jesus. And we are seeing the tares, the non-believer, becoming stronger in their opposition to Jesus. So, we are seeing this coming apart. Now, that is going to leave the world in chaos. There, 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 there's chaos as a result of it. We have existed together. We have worked together. But now then, there is this pulling, pulling apart. And so as we come to the end of time, it is going to leave the world in chaos. Now, what I believe is going to happen, and that's what I see as I look at the world today, as there is this coming apart, the chaos that we are seeing around the world right now. No one, no leader is going to have the answer to the questions. There are all these issues that we are facing. There are all these problems that we are facing. And no one seems to have the answer. And then... Someone is going to come on the scene who has the answer. And what will the world do? The world will follow that one, because that one has the answer. Who is that one? It's the Antichrist. And so when I look at the world today, it seems to me like there is a coming apart, a separation of the wheat and the tares. There are questions to which no one seems to have the answer. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in the Middle East. We're seeing what's happening in Japan. We're we're seeing all of this around the world today. No one has the answer. There one day is going to be someone who is going to come forward with the answers, impressing the world. They will follow him, and that one will be the Antichrist. He says, Waken. Don't be like the drunk. Wake up and watch the signs that you might repent. Again, in chapter 1, verse number 14, Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. You see, they were religious outwardly, but their hearts were not. And so He is speaking to them about the condition of their heart that they are to repent because they had become indifferent. I think that if... Many of us were honest about it. We would say the problem we have as Christians today is indifference. You remember when you were first saved, how excited you were about Jesus? Do you remember? I mean, you had been forgiven. You were on fire for the Lord. You're jumping up and down like Catherine, some of these out here, just excited about the Lord. And the great temptation that you faced at that time was uh, returning to the old way of life, returning to the flesh. But then after you've been saved for a while, after you've been in the family for some time, eh, you're not quite as excited as you once were. Your greatest temptation is not sins of the flesh. I mean, you know, you get a certain age. Some of you guys, you get an age and a a pretty girl goes by and you say, you Lord did a good job with her. That's about the extent of it. But the temptation that we face is that of indifference. We just become indifferent. And that was the sin of, of Laodicea that you that you read about in, in, uh, in the book of Revelation. Jesus said, You're not hot, you're not cold, you're just lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Folks, what we need, what, what we is that some of that passion again. I pray for that. God, give me that passion again. To love him. I mean, to really love him. Now, I know that it's going to be a different way than, than whenever you're young. It, it always put that passion, that passion for the lost. How, how long has it been since you've really cared about someone who was lost? I was watching Arthur Bless It last night. Of course, he's always. You know, he never grew up. He's still excited about the Lord. But he was talking about, you know, whenever he said, whenever a salesperson comes to your house, you don't want to see them. But whenever they come, ring the doorbell, you tell them, say, come on in, I'll give you five if you'll give me five. And he says, you give them five minutes to sell their products. And you don't want it, but just let them say whatever they want to. And after they get through, it's all right, it's now my turn. And talk to them about Jesus. Tell them what Jesus done in your life. He said, when you're paying your bills, have, 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 a, have a stack of uh, gospel tracts there. Put a tract in every one of those bills. He said, you'll be praying God to send you more bills so you can witness to more people. <laughs> but, boy, we need that passion again so we're not indifferent, so we're not lukewarm. Isn't that the temptation that you face, that many of you face? We've just become indifferent to the things of God. So what the prophet is saying is that we need to awaken. We need to wake up that we might warn people. So in chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. God's people are to warn the world as to what is happening around them. That's what we are to do. We are to take the gospel everywhere. That's what the Great Commission says. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel. That people might return in chapter 2, verse number 12. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. It means come back to. Come back to me with all your heart. And then in verse 13, he says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. You see, the Jews would rend their garments as a show of sorrow. And Jesus said, no, this is not a show. Or God says, this is not a show. Rend your heart. Folks, don't be like a Christian. Be a Christian. Don't go to church. Be the church. He says, Rend your heart. Don't just go through the motions of it. He says, But rend your hearts. The Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And God has promised as we do this that He will give us comfort because of His his nature. In chapter 2, verse 13, it says that He is gracious, that He is slow to anger. It is God's nature to be gracious and slow to anger. And then because of His nurture, in chapter 2, verse number 24, And the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. There will be abundance. He says the threshing floors will be full, and the vats will overflow. Warren Wearsby says they will more than make up for the years wasted by the locusts. And then we see his nearness in chapter 2, verse 27. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. There is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. He says, look, you do this and you'll know that I'm in your midst. Isn't that a wonderful thought? When I come to church to worship with you and to hear this choir and to worship with you in this orchestra, I sense the presence of God. He said, I'm I'm there in your midst. And he said, and I'll pour out my spirit on you. And that's what we want. As I conclude... The book of Joel has two things for me. First of all, it's judgment. And I believe that we are drawing very near to the final judgment. The second thing is grace. God offers grace to those who return to Him. Folks, don't be like the drunk person, unaware of what is happening. But return to God. That He might bless you. Our Father in God, we come to a time of invitation, a time of searching as Your Spirit searches our heart. Lord, I pray today that You will awaken us, that we might not be indifferent to what's going on around us, that we might see the signs and understand the nearness of Your return. And Lord, even as the Scripture says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, for those who are not ready for Your coming, that they would be saved today. I pray, Father, that You would move in people's hearts draw them to Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. What will you do with Jesus? If you've never trusted Him, would you commit your life to Him today? If you're looking for a church home, our door is open to you. Let's join together to take the gospel into the world that people might be saved. Stand with me, please. As we stand and they sing, You come, I'll greet you as you do.